Well, well. All right. Let's get back to more Presbyterian ways of worshiping. <laughs> so we're in 2 Samuel 9. If you have your Bibles or a Bible app, uh, it's also printed in the bulletin if you need that. Uh, so in Christianity, uh, hopefully you've picked up on it even just today in worship. In Christianity, we talk a lot about grace, or at least we ought to talk a lot about grace. Our assurance of pardon reminded us it is by grace that you have been saved. It is by God's sheer, pure, straight, unmingled, uncombined, uncontaminated grace. It is the grace of God that has received you and me as God's children. Not because of anything you have done, not because of anything that I have done, not because of anything that you or I will do in the future, but purely because of God's grace. Uh, the most simple way of putting it is that grace is unmerited favor. It is the favor of God that you cannot earn and that you do not deserve. It is God's kindness, God's love. We call it unconditional love, but really that doesn't go far enough, does it? It's not just that God's love is unconditional. God's love for you is contra-conditional. God's love for you actually goes against what you deserve, what you have earned, because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. That we do not die for our sins immediately is grace. That God sent his Son to be our Savior is grace. It goes against everything we earn or deserve. And when we forget this, when we forget, as we sing sometimes, not what my hands have done, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. When we forget this, we become one of two things. We either become very self-righteous and proud because we've forgotten the grace by which we are saved, or we become very shame-filled and frightened because we forget that it was always by grace. As one pastor put it, if you can earn your salvation, you can lose your salvation. If it's not firmly in God's hands, then it must be in your hands, and you and I know what fickle believers we can be sometimes. Chapter 9 of Second Samuel is just an amazing picture of the grace of God. In one sense, it's an amazing picture of this man, David, who recognizes the grace of God in his own life so much that he can't help but be gracious to others. If God has treated me this way, how could I not treat others this way? And at the same time, David is the Lord's anointed. He is the king. He is God's representative on earth. And as the Lord's anointed, when he shows grace, it is always for us a picture of God's grace to us, a picture 
of the Lord's anointed Jesus Christ, who's the true king, David's son, yet David's Lord. And so we will look at 2 Samuel and see the grace of God here. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Let me ask you a question, just kind of preparing our hearts for this. Where do you find your identity? Where do you get your identity? And it seems like there are just three possibilities, and in one sense, almost only two possibilities. But let's, for argument's sake, say there are three possibilities. You get your identity uh, from the world around you. Others give you your identity. Or you get your identity from yourself within. You, you, you know, you, 
You do you. You be you. You find yourself. You create your own identity. Or you receive your identity from God. You hear how God identifies you, and you embrace that. So you either look to the world and say, well, what does the world say about who I am? You look inward and say, well, what do I think about who I am? Or you look to God and say, well, what does God say about who I am? Those are the only possibilities. Where do you find your self-worth? When we look at this story about Mephibosheth, we cannot help but see grace. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. We see it at least in three ways. We see undeserved love, unearned wealth, and unfathomable relationship. Admittedly, the entire outline comes from verse 7. Everything that David says to Mephibosheth in verse 7. And Mephibosheth's name is repeated more in the chapter than any other name, so there's no getting around that this is all about Mephibosheth. But because of that, I'm going to be saying his name a lot. And so kids, you can count how many times I stutter halfway through it. Because let me tell you, other than Jehoshaphat, I don't know if there's a more cruel name a parent could give a child, Mephibosheth. At least Jehoshaphat, you could call him Joe. I, I've been working all week to try to figure out, what do you call this guy? Fib? Fibby? Sheth? Shetty? I don't know. Mephibosheth is what we're going to go with. Anyway, uh, God had already made uh, some pretty over-the-top promises to David. Unearned, undeserved promises to David. First of all, God had taken him as a shepherd and made him the king of Israel. He made David the Lord's anointed. God has granted to David rest from all of his enemies. We've seen this in the last couple of chapters. God has established his covenant with Israel is going to now flow through the line of David. David's offspring will sit on the throne forever. David has definitely been blessed by God, and he is looking for someone to bless. But he's not just looking for anyone to bless. He's looking specifically for someone from his friend's family, his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, the first king of Israel. Jonathan and David had become such close friends that they had committed. They had, in fact, used the word covenant. They had covenanted to remain faithful to one another's households forever. And now Jonathan was dead, but David is still committed. He still wants to know, how can I show kindness to Jonathan's family? He calls an old servant of Saul in, a man named Ziba. Now, I'm not sure what we're supposed to think about Ziba, at least from this passage. I don't know about you. I just get a I get an icky feeling when I read about Ziba. Now, part of that, I have to admit, is that I've read further on into 2 Samuel, and Ziba is a shady character. But even here, I just feel like there are things that were told about him that should cause us to go, I don't know if this is a good guy. You know, 
First of all, if Ziba is a faithful servant of Saul, why is Mephibosheth living with a stranger in another town altogether? A town, Lodabar, that literally means no pastures. So he's not just, he's living in a, pl- a desolate place now. Why? If Ziba is so faithful to his master, Saul, why is Saul's grandson living in isolation and desolation? We were first introduced to Mephibosheth in chapter 4, and it's just a sort of side story to something else that's going on, but we're told that on the day that David, uh, excuse me, Saul and Jonathan died in battle, uh, Mephibosheth, who was five years old at the time, uh, his nurse uh, takes him and flees from the castle, afraid that the Philistines are now going to come and kill all of Saul's offspring, which is a pretty common occurrence. When you conquered another nation, you would kill all of the king's family so that there wouldn't be any uprisings. So out of fear, she grabs Mephibosheth to flee. As she flees, she drops him. When she drops him, uh, apparently he breaks both legs. And we're not talking about times with MRIs or x-rays or uh, orthopedic surgeons. And the result of this fall is that Mephibosheth is now lame in both of his legs for the remainder of his life. In fact, chapter 4 does the exact same thing that this chapter 9 does with Mephibosheth. Tells us twice two different ways about his condition. Opens by telling us he was lame in his legs closes by telling us he was crippled in both his feet. Both chapter 4 and chapter 9 don't want you to miss that reality. And as I said, when kings died in battle, it was not uncommon that their entire households would be slaughtered. And so in one sense, it's not unreasonable to think that David, the normal response to, to Mephibosheth, culturally is to kill him, but it's even reasonable to say to just let him live out his life in obscurity, just leave him where he is uh, so that he doesn't come and usurp David's power. After all, he's the grandson of Saul. Yes, David had sworn allegiance to Jonathan, but Saul himself had sworn that David would die. Saul wanted David dead. Saul was on a rampage, on a campaign, used his entire military power to try to kill David. It would not be unreasonable for David to consider Mephibosheth based on his relationship to Saul. But David doesn't look at Mephibosheth as a descendant of Saul. He looks at him as a descendant of Jonathan, whom David loved. I'm sure as Mephibosheth is traveling from Lodabar to Jerusalem, he's a little nervous. I mean, some, someone from the king's entourage has found him and said, the king uh, demands that you come before him. Did anyone else know why he was coming? Did anyone feel obligation to tell him, hey, he's going to be okay? Did he come in fear? It says that he fell on his face as soon as he came. He's escorted in. Isn't it great that David calls him by name? I mean, how important is that? He's in there, he falls on his face, and David says, Mephibosheth. 
I don't know if you noticed this or not. He's not named until he gets into David's presence in this chapter. He's identified by his weakness, by his ailment, but not by name until he comes into the king's presence. And only when he enters the king's presence does even the narrator tell us his name. And so Mephibosheth came into the king's presence and fell on his face. And David said, Mephibosheth. It is not insignificant, at least in the writing. The king knew his name, called him by name, personally. Now, as I said, verse 7 is, the, is where we'll draw all of our outline. Now, partly, verse 7, I don't know if you notice this, if you're a mathy kind of person, you'll notice verse 7 is in the exact center of the verses, 13 verses. Verse 7 is in the center, but it's also the central theme, which in Hebrew writing happens all the time. Like, what they want you to focus on is often in the middle of the story. And so we see here, each statement that David says to Mephibosheth is another expansion, a new level of undeserved, unexpected grace. As I said in the announcements, women are reading, many of the women are reading this summer a book called Extravagant Grace by Barbara Duguid. And that is exactly what Mephibosheth experiences from David. Extravagant grace. It is exactly what you and I experience from God on a daily basis. Extravagant grace. Look at the picture of David's relationship to Mephibosheth. First of all, there is undeserved love. At the beginning of verse 7, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. The word kindness, it's a word, if you noticed, David has now used three times. Kindness. First, he's just sort of wondering out loud. I wonder if there's anyone left of the house of Jonathan that I could show kindness to. Then he asks directly, Ziba, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? And now he says directly to Mephibosheth, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Kindness doesn't quite cut it. But the problem is we don't have an English word that does quite cut it. Your English Bibles will sometimes call this kindness. Sometimes they'll call this loving kindness. Sometimes they will call this steadfast love. In fact, most frequently in the Psalms, it is called steadfast love. The steadfast love, the kindness, the mercy, the loving kindness. It's, it's the love that God has for his covenant children. It is a love that he has covenanted to feel for his children. And it is a love that David says, I am going to show that kind of love to you, Mephibosheth. Because of your father, Mephibosheth. I'm going to show love to you because of the love I felt and feel for your father. Because of David's love for Jonathan, 
he will treat Mephibosheth with that same love. See, based on Mephibosheth, oh, there's one. Based on Mephibosheth's relationship with Saul, he deserves death. <coughs> Two, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth is a descendant of the enemy of the throne. In his relationship to Saul, he deserves to die. In and of himself, he deserves to be written off and ignored. If he comes to stand before the king in his own name, what possibly can a lame, crippled man whose grandfather wanted you dead, what does he possibly have to offer? And it sounds harsh, and, and it's a different time, but if you were crippled, there weren't wheelchairs. There, weren't, there was no way to help you be, do anything. You were, you were a beggar for the rest of your life. What does he bring to the king in himself? Nothing. But in his relationship to Jonathan, he's beloved because of Jonathan. So if we say it this way, in himself, he's nothing but a burden. In Saul... He's only an enemy. But in Jonathan, he is counted as the king's beloved friend. I mean, are you get are you is it I mean, is this washing over you? Is this I mean, are you getting as excited about this as I am? Is this like these are where the goosebumps come? This is where you know, Amy says I don't connect the dots enough. Sometimes I lay out a bunch of dots and then you're stuck with you know, unicorns instead of, you know, horses holding swords. So let me do this. In yourself, you are nothing at best before God. In yourself, you have nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. In yourself, you are nothing. In Adam, you're worse than nothing. You are a descendant of sin. You have original sin in you. You were born in sin. You were conceived in sin. Sin is all that you have to offer. But in Christ, in Christ, you are holy before God. In Christ, you are righteous in the eyes of God. Not because of you, but because of God's eternal redemptive covenant with his own son that uh, through you I will redeem and make myself a people and so now you in Christ are redeemed not because of you because of Christ it's because of God's love for his son that he loves you you are in Christ you are a new creation the old is gone the new has come God's love for his son and your relationship to, his, to him, God's love for Jesus is now God's love for you. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. But David's not done. 
I mean, that would be enough. That's overwhelming. David is going to love this young man, this, this crippled man who has nothing to offer. He's going to love him, not because he's so lovable, but because David loved his father and David had committed to his father. But that's not all. Not only does Mephibosheth receive undeserved love from David, he receives unearned wealth from David. The next thing David says, And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. Why does he speak of Saul instead of Jonathan here? I think in part it's to, it's to, remind, it's to remind us that all of Saul's land was forfeit. Like, Saul was a treasonous usurper. Saul was told David would be the next king. And Saul wanted him dead so that Saul's own line could sit on the throne longer. Saul was treasonous. Saul had given up any right to the lands that he once owned. All of the land, all of the proceeds of that land would have been, would have belonged now to the new king. By his right, these lands are his. The usurper is dead. The king receives all of his lands. The king would receive uh, tribute from those lands regularly. It seems like Ziba is already working those lands, and he's worked out a pretty good deal for himself. He's got 15 sons and 20 servants, and sure, he's paying a little homage to the king, but he's, he's getting along quite nicely off of this land. Three times, David reminds Ziba, when he talks about this land, that Ziba's rightful role in all of this is as servant to Mephibosheth. Three times he calls Mephibosheth the grandson of your master. The grandson of your master. He tells him in 9 and 10, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. This is going to cost David. This isn't wealth that Mephibosheth can earn. Others have to work for him. He can't do anything to, to earn this wealth. This is going to cost David. He will no longer receive the proceeds from the land. He's saying all of the crops, all of the proceeds, these are going to now go for Mephibosheth. It's not just as a gift, though. He's restoring the land to Mephibosheth. This man who this morning woke up as a stranger in a stranger's home in a town called No Pastures, now has had all of the lands restored to him. He owns land. And the only reason that doesn't mean anything to us is because we're just so far away from an agricultural society or from, from the world of of ancient Israel where, where the land if you didn't have your land you were nothing like it was, it was illegal to sell the land to someone in another tribe the land was for your people and in fact even if you had to sell your land to someone in your tribe because you were in debt every seven years that debt would be forgiven every 49 years the land would just be given back to all of the original owners 
Mephibosheth is given a home. He's given a future. He has wealth. A home, a future, wealth, all of these things that he is physically incapable of providing for himself, the king will provide for him. I already quoted the beginning of this hymn, not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God, not all my prayers or sighs or tears can bear my awful load. Another song we sing, how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. His blood our ransom and defense, his glory our reward. Are your goosebumps getting goosebumps yet? It's not just that you are loved with an unconditional, undeserved love, but God has given you a home and a future and wealth all at his expense, not at your expense. Mephibosheth is loved purely because of David's love for Jonathan. Mephibosheth has a home and a future and a land purely because of David's generosity. And still, David is not done. What more could he possibly do for Mephibosheth? I mean, if it weren't so trite, it would, it would feel like I grew up in the 70s and 80s. You know, game shows were a big thing. I mean, it just seems like, you know, here's, it feels like there's like three curtains still going on here. And he's like, okay, Mephibosheth, here's what you've won. You are loved eternally by a king who should have you executed. But wait, don't act, don't speak up. You're also going to be given a land and a future and wealth. What do you say to that? But don't respond because we have a new car. No, because you are going to be adopted by the king. You are going to be treated like the king's son forever. This is too much. This is beyond. It's just, it's too much. It's too much. It's unfathomable. You will eat at my table always. Verse 7, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Verse 10, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 11, so, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he ate always at the king's table. Verse 13, Mephibosheth is raised up from a crippled stranger to beloved friend's son to wealthy landowner to accepted son. David treats Mephibosheth as if he were his own son all the days of his life. 1 John 3, look at the kind of love the Father has given to you that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know you is because they don't know him. Beloved, we are God's children. Romans 8, you've not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit now. We are children of God, and if children, we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. What Christ has earned as the Son of God is counted in your favor. Do you realize everything God says about his son, he says about you now because you are in his son and he has adopted you. So when you read a phrase in the Bible where the father says, well done. When the father says, this is my son. I'm so pleased with him. You are so united with Christ that when he looks at you, he says, this is my son. This is my daughter. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with you. How should this affect us? Well, sure. First, there should probably be a little bit of humility, don't you think? I think it's not an unusual thing to sit on the ground and say, what is your servant that you would have regard for a dead dog such as I? Listen, this isn't, this isn't Fido buried in the backyard. This isn't 21st century dead dog. This isn't weeping and gnashing of teeth over the pet. Dead dogs in Israel were simply dead scavengers. I mean, for us, it would be more like, what am I? What, how could you have regard for a dead raccoon or a dead rat? Maybe rat is better. Although all of these, we figured out how to make them pets now. I just don't understand. But that's a completely different soapbox. But he is saying, I'm I'm worse than a scavenger. I'm a dead scavenger. And you have this kind of regard for me. Ought there not be a little bit of humility in us when we think of what Christ has done for us? And amazement, not just humility, but amazement. Mephibosheth had a son named Micah, whose name means who is like God. We should never stop being amazed. We should be humble, we should be amazed, and we should receive it. How awkward would it have been for Mephibosheth to say, thank you, and then whistled for his carrier to take him back to no pastures? No. He moved to Jerusalem. He didn't even live on the land that was providing him his wealth and his future. He lived in Jerusalem all his days because more important than providing, he was now counted among David's sons. And so he received it. Live as a child of God with your heavenly father. Receive the blessings that come with knowing that the heavenly king has chosen and adopted you. He loves you because of his love for his own son. He has a wealth and a future and a home for you. Stop living like orphans. Stop living like scavengers. Receive 
the blessing of being God's adopted child. Let's pray. What can I say, Father? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Your love for us is amazing. You've made us sons of God in Christ. We are sons of the Heavenly Father. You have adopted us. We are co-heirs with your perfect son. What he has inherited from you, we receive. Would you deliver us from our fear, our slavish ways, our pride and arrogance, our shame? Let's help us to just receive what you have given us in your son, your loving kindness, your steadfast love, your chesed because of your steadfast love for your son our savior in Jesus name we pray, amen